friends. This is the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Russ. And I am Gordon. And this is episode number 125. It is. It is indeed. And so, Gordon, you had a great idea for a topic. So what are we talking about today? Well, the bottom line is, do we trust our light meters or the LCDs when we're using it to meter a scene? I was asked this many times before. Uh, it started with me asking it initially, and then I started to understand it. But since I get asked it so often, I thought I would uh, bring it up as a matter for discussion. I think it's a very good topic for discussion because I too have heard it and probably continually hear it. Uh, it seems to be an issue for folks who either are new to photography or new to their camera. Mm -hmm. Because even folks who've been making photographs for some period of time, they get a new camera and this topic seems to come up again. So where do, where do you think it starts or what's the first kind of thing? people here you hear well, i i think it initially starts when uh people have a tent are advised to switch from using the auto mode to progressing to shooting maybe in shutter priority or aperture priority and they say oh yeah this is the nicest thing since sliced bread and then they come back and say i got drek What's going on? What? Why am I getting photographs that look like this? Okay. So, let's make sure that I'm understanding this properly. The, the user in question has been shooting in program mode or the fully automatic mode. Correct. And up until now has been pretty happy with their photographs. But they've now decided that they want to take a little bit more control. Correct. Uh, either of shutter speed or aperture and they're probably now a little bit more engaged in their photography, maybe becoming a little bit more critical of what they're getting. And that seems to be coincident with the decision to, you know, at least want to use one of the semi-automatic modes. And Correct. now they're feeling that their images are crap. If we take out just images that just don't work, a lot of this seems to fall to metering. Is that correct? Or the perception of poor metering? Uh, yes, I, I think so. Um, it doesn't doesn't have anything to do with getting blurred, blurred images or out of focus images, but they take an image that they looked at and they said this looks nice, and it isn't when it comes out. So they feel that the image is too dark or too light. Yes. Okay. So one of the things that we know is that the camera built-in light meter. Uh, is based on reflected light. Mm -hmm. Light reflected from something. Yes. And light reflected from a dark subject, there's what appears to be less of it, mm -hmm. as opposed to light reflected from a bright subject. Mm -hmm. So snow would be very white, a cat in a coal mine be very dark. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that what you've found is what I've found the complaints occur when we've got mixed subjects in the same shot. Perhaps a darker foreground and a, and a very bright sky. Excuse me. Or 
a high level of contrast. Is that fair? Yes. Uh, in addition, um, I, th- I think the, the perennial question seems to be, my snow is gray. My brightly lit sand is dark brown. And they don't understand why. Okay, that's fair. So we've talked um, in articles on the site um, and certainly in different meetings and presentations about understanding that the camera's meter is extraordinarily sensitive. Lots of meter points, but it has basically one job. And that's to average the value of light that it sees from all these sensor points take all those values and produce something that would render what we call middle gray, basically halfway between black and white. So if I'm metering, sorry guys, the TB is kicking in today. Uh, If I'm metering an all snow scene, everything's white, but the meter's job is to average everything to gray. I should expect that image to be gray. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. But folks don't. They expect it to be white. Mm-hmm. So the conclusion that gets drawn is that there's something wrong with the camera. Correct. But the camera's done everything it's supposed exactly what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It's fulfilling its design completely. Yes. And the same thing would be true in a very of a very dark subject. Like a Darker-skinned gentleman in a dark tuxedo. Right. They might appear too light. They might appear washed out. Because, again, the camera's meter is telling the exposure. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry, guys. The camera's meter is basing its exposure recommendation, the exposure settings in the camera, to getting that average to be middle gray. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think one of the first things that we want to encourage folks to understand is that they, they need to know what they're looking at. They actually have to make some decisions based on the subject that they're going to photograph. Does that make sense? Yes. Absolutely. So, so, so from what you're saying, is even though the camera is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, uh, you have to understand what the camera is trying to do. And you may need to make a decision to override what the camera is trying to do. Right, and it's, the camera would make the same decisions in auto or program. Yes. But the more we choose not to depend on these automations, in fact, the more critical we become as people. So one of the things that we talk about is Well, you need to evaluate the scene. Yep. But there's a problem. What's the problem? What does it mean to evaluate a scene? Okay, so I think fundamentally we need to look at the range of tones, the amount of black relative to the rest of the scene, Mm -hmm. the amount of bright white relative to the rest of the scene. Does the scene actually average out? to kind of a middle gray type of thing. So I get my whites, my blacks, and all the things in, in, in between. Now, there's some things that we can look at there 
Um, obviously, one of the things I would suggest is to consider uh, how reflective your subjects are. You know, if you're photographing kids in a swimming pool and the sun's beating down on that water, that's going to be highly reflective. Mm-hmm. And it's going to look super bright. And you may need to do something about that because that very bright white is going to get averaged down to gray. And those kids in the pool are going to disappear into silhouette. Yes. Um, it can, And it can be the other th- way as well. Like, let's suppose we're taking some photographs. You know, we're just having a little fire, some friends around at night. Yep. And uh, to our eye, which is magic, it looks great, but the camera sees all that black and tries to make it gray. Yep. And so everything gets washed out and looks kind of grainy and crappy looking. Uh, and the fire disappears. And the fire <laughs> it disappears. It turns into, <laughs> oh, what's that white ball of magic there? So, that yeah, that that's one thing. Um now, you've talked, uh, I've heard you talk to other people about the direction of the light. So maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Um, thinking about uh, direction in terms of where the light is placed in relation to you as the photographer and which part of the subject that light is going to fall on. Uh, we talk about front lighting, which basically is the old camera rule about get the sun at your back or get it coming over your shoulder, and it'll fall entirely on the <coughs> subject you want to photograph, and generally will give you an adequately exposed, if not blah, photo. Or the sun may be coming from the left side or the right side of the image, which throws up, which introduces the concept of shadows and texture and makes your photograph more interesting. Or the maybe coming the other way. The sun is, or the lighting, is now behind the subject. And your camera sees that is nice and bright and makes everything that you're, that should be well illuminated throws it into a silhouette. Right. And, and these are all good criteria because our human eye, what I often call the Mark I Mod Zero eyeball. That's a good definition. Well, first build, no, mod, no changes. Uh, is is indeed magical, and it can see a lot of range of light that no camera sensor can. Right. Uh, however good they've gotten, and they've gotten very good, but they still don't see like an eyeball, and they don't have a brain interpreting for them. So if we mm-hmm. are in that situation, that backlit situation, we can look at the backlighting and see everything, and it looks great, and we look at the subject that is backlight, and we focus our attention on that subject, the subject looks great. Mm-hmm. But we miss the fact that when we focus attention on the subject, the background <coughs> blows out completely. Right. So I think that that's understanding the direction of the light and where it's falling is a big part. And particularly in side lighting that you talked about, you know, if I've got light cutting across, a, let's say it's a person, if I've got a light cutting across a face, I have a side that's lit and a side that's in shadow. 
Mm-hmm. I can't have both at the same exposure. Right. I have to pick one. So that's a choice mm-hmm. that the photographer has to make. Which part of the subject is the most important to them or where they want the dominant exposure area or area of exposure focus to be. Um, it's a decision. And no camera is going to make that decision for you. So I think that that's a critical piece. The other piece I think that um, we need to always be aware of is how big's the subject in the frame? Right. You know, if I take a photograph of a person at sunset um, down on a beach, for example, and it's mostly sky, mm-hmm. and I let my camera expose for the sky, what's the person going to look like? They're going to be that silhouette that you just talked right. about. But if I get closer, either physically closer or use a longer lens, and not in a creepy kind of way, <laughs> okay. and, and I fill the frame with that person, they become the dominant source. I'm metering more of the reflected light from that person. Maybe that backlight now takes up a smaller portion of the image, and it will blow out, but my person is going to have that you know, that lovely golden look or glow or whatever it is that I'm seeing when I look at my subject through the eye. But that's a decision I have to make. It's just not, bleh. the camera's just not going to cough out what you think you want. You have to make some choices around it. Right. So I guess one of the next questions that people ask is, well, how do I deal with this? Yep. How do you deal with it? Um, <clears throat> I have learned through a certain person who shall remain nameless uh, the whole concept of compensating or forcing your camera to compensate uh, for what the light is doing or what you want the light to be doing. Uh, if I can just briefly divulge into a aside here. Uh, a friend of mine was trying to photograph uh, some images on, on a white background. And he he told me, he said, I keep changing uh, my my exposure, but the black, the whites are still coming out as gray. He says, I use auto ISO. Uh, but no, I'm still getting... I'm still getting gray. So this was a reasonably um, aware person, but he had no concept that just changing the ISO in an automatic, in an auto ISO situation is not going to make anything brighter or darker. He had completely missed the concept of changing the exposure through the mechanism of the camera. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that you've hit on something really important here. One of the benefits and the joys of automation, including the semi-automatic modes, is if I shift one thing, the other things shift to maintain the same exposure. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's suppose I'm in shutter preferred and uh, auto ISO, and I choose a shutter speed initially of, one one twenty fifth of a second. The camera does whatever the camera does. It says, "Yeah, okay, this is going to be great." 
at F8 at ISO 200. But now if I change, and I get an exposure and I go, oh, you know, that's not quite what I'm looking for. I know I'll go slower because that'll let more light in, drop my shutter speed to a 30th of a second, but the camera's still in automatic, in doing its automation, right? Right. So what's it going to do? Change everything else too. Right. It could drop the ISO to ISO 100 while also making the aperture smaller. Mm-hmm. It's gonna. You've made a two-stop change in one thing. The camera's gonna go make those two-stop changes in the other two elements that make up the exposure. Right. Right. Shutter speed, aperture, and ISO. Mm-hmm. The three always go together. What you're talking about, however, is what the industry wants to call exposure compensation. Right. Compensate on exposure, which I think is really badly defined. I would call it light com- light compensation. Okay. Because I think that people get confused. They go, oh, exposure compensation. So if I dial that, and many cameras have a dial, to the plus side, I'm going to overexpose. And if I dial it to the minus side, I'm going to underexpose. And I don't want either of those things. That would be bad. But if you thought about it maybe as light compensation, and said, I've got a very bright scene, snow, or photographing on that white background. I want to deal with a brighter, go to the plus side. Right. I've got a brighter situation. Oh, I've got a darker situation. Right. Jewelry, photographed on black velvet, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to get the jewelry highlights, the colors of whatever it is the jewelry is. But you want the black velvet to be black, not gray. Right. So I'm dealing with a darker situation. So I'm going to go to the minus side, the darker side, and adjust my exposure in that regard. Now, I know that the whole industry calls it exposure compensation, and I'm a guy standing in a field shouting, give it a different name. (laughs) I don't care what name we give it really, but I found that it's easier for people to understand that way. Okay. Oh, I got a brighter. I've got a bright, bright subject that I want to have exposed. Looking correctly, I'm going to have to go to the plus. I've got a dark subject that I want to have exposed properly. I'm going to have to go to the minus. And whether that's done with a dial on the camera, or uh, you know, holding a button down and rotating a wheel, every camera today allows for this. Right. You don't have to go to manual, fully manual mode. You can if you want. And it also works in fully automatic mode as well. So if I'm photographing a snow scene, even if I'm shooting in fully full auto, I can look at that scene and go, that's really bright. Right. That's brighter than sort of mid-tone gray. I better go to the plus side. Right. And how much do you go? Well, it's always a guess. It never hurts you. If your scene is mostly white, go plus two. If your scene is mostly dark, go minus two. Your camera has a lot of exposure latitude, and you're probably going to get a whole lot closer. Now, have you ever found that people seem reluctant to use this dial, like they're going to set off a nuclear weapon or something like that? Oh, I can't go plus two. Oh, no, that would be really bad. I don't understand the fear, but I've seen it. Have you seen that too? Uh, I, I've seen it, and uh, from 
I've attributed it to two things. One is maybe not a clear understanding of what the ca- what the uh, exposure meter is looking at in your frame when it uh, does its uh, com- compensation or its uh, numbers, <coughs> or maybe an not a f- complete grasp of what they are trying to expose for. I think that that's probably fair since in, and we've been through this together. <coughs> Back in the olden days, my time, <laughs> we spent a lot of time learning about how reflective light got metered. Right. And we used tools like a gray card. Yep. And a spot meter to, to make sure that we got the metering that we wanted for the subject that we wanted. But that's more work than most folks are willing to do. Right. But we have to remember that today's light meters are no different, perhaps more sensitive, more pixels, more whatever, more different zones. They're still trying to achieve that 50% gray kind of look. Uh, And it does get more confusing because you go out and you buy a decent camera today and, oh, well, we've got spot meter, we've got center-weighted spot, we've got partial, we've got matrix, uh, we've got colander, we've got saucepan, (laughs) we've got... Kitchen sink. Yeah, and to regular folks, I think they go, okay, I've got option paralysis here. I don't know. The reality is that these metering patterns have been refined over decades to try to deal with as many of those scenarios where the user's going to be unhappy but doesn't know how the camera's metering is actually working. Right. Or where the camera's meter is looking. Right. Um, So there is a little bit of accountability that the photographer needs to take to read the documentation and pick one. Right. And learn to be really, really good with it. Right. Um, If you want to have good control over your exposure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can do nothing and just accept whatever the camera throws at you and, you know, twist the dials a little bit. That's a, that's a help. But I think there's more to it than that because I know, for example, I, I don't have a, a mirrorless camera, but I can play back a photograph on the LCD on any of the cameras that I own and through an info button or something like that, I can see some type of exposure scale, typically referred to as a histogram. Right. And it's just a graph that shows you from black to white. Mm-hmm. And if you see that that's piled up against the the black side and your image looks dark well that's that'd be why it says add more light what and the other way around if it's all piled up against the white side and the image looks too bright well i'll take some light away and that will shift the histogram right now histogram is don't make those decisions in the scenario of the snowbound scene well, the jewelry on black velvet, because you actually want it to be jammed against the white side or the black side. But for a general image, you'd like to see that graphic spread as widely as possible. 
right. across that histogram. And there are a lot of considerations why the histogram can be useful, but we also find that people then start to treat it like it's some kind of gospel word, and it's not. It's a representation of what's been stored in a compressed digital file. It's not super accurate. It's not super awful, but it's a guideline. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the thing that we can do is use these tools um, to help us. But there are other tools in a camera yep. that, that can help us. You know, quickly highlight areas where we're completely blown out, where there's no data, or where there's no light at all and there's no data. No, um, I'm not one to use these very much, but uh, I think you talked to somebody who did. What do you call them? Uh, blinkies. Blinkies. And what does a blinky do? Well, just what it says. It blinks. Okay. And you've got different colored blinkies, namely, well, I don't know if they're all different colored, uh, but they are either red or blue. And if parts of your image are kind of flashing blue dots at you, those points in your image are going to be uh, underexposed to the point of losing any kind of detail. Okay. And if the red is flashing, uh, those parts of the image are overexposed to the same endpoint. You have no detail in there. Okay. Now, some folks have felt that if you turned on the blinkies, your pictures would actually have red and blue on them. Uh, no. The only person who's seeing the blinkies is you, not the camera. Okay, so it's perfectly safe Absolutely. to set your camera up to show you blinkies because it's a really quick indicator of over or under exposure, sure. right? Sure. Um, you don't even have to get into Instagram with that. No, but I, I think if, if there was something I could uh, pass on to people in general is take the time to investigate a histogram and how you can use it because it's probably the... Like you said, it's not deadly accurate, but of all the tools that we have, it's probably the thing that gets you closest to being able to make a rational decision about your photograph. I, I have to concur. You're right. Um, I know I often sound overly cautious about histograms. Um, they're not perfect, but they are the best option available. Correct. They'll get you. They'll definitely get you well inside the ballpark of where you need to be. Sure. And just don't treat them as, you know, the word of whatever. Not, not gospel. Yeah, not gospel. Now, with the transition, the ongoing transition to mirrorless, things change for photographers. I think to their fortune, because the viewfinder is no longer optical, meaning... You're actually seeing what the sensor is going to get mm-hmm. through an electronic viewfinder. You mm-hmm. don't necessarily get that through an optical viewfinder. Right. You're seeing through the lens. Awesome. But you're not seeing what's going to be recorded the way it's going to be recorded. Right. So I, I can't remember whether on when I was shooting Nikon, 
because I didn't know enough about anything at that point. But um, I don't know if I had the the histogram available to me all the time. Only I had an expulsion dial, but I didn't have it available for, to me for making the decisions before I pressed the shutter. No, you didn't. Because you were, if you were looking through the viewfinder, right. you didn't. If the camera supported using the rear LCD mm-hmm. for composition and photograph making, right. it may or may not have offered you a history. Yes, that was going to be a question because I, I don't know, again, whether uh, the LCD was good for playback, but I don't know, again, whether it gave you, maybe some did, some didn't. And, and you that's the, the truth answer, the the. The, the, the effective, most accurate answer is the one we come to expect. It depends. <laughs> it depends on yes. the camera itself. Yes. It really depends whether the camera offered you that capability. If you were using the histogram for composition and shooting, uh, or even tapping for focus point, if that display would give you the histogram option on the right. LCD. In playback, I think most all of them do. But in the shooting, I'm no, I don't know. And I can tell you for sure that an optical viewfinder, you don't have It doesn't, one. no. You need to get to an electronic viewfinder um, or a rear screen LCD that is designed to give you these tools before you squeeze the shutter. Yes. Now, I mean, seeing it afterwards is, is nice. You can say, I'll go back and shoot it again. But sometimes you can't. No, sometimes the shot only happens once. Right. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the benefits that mirrorless brings people because all of the mirrorless cameras will give you that histogram at any time, at least all of, one, all of them that I've shot. And I've shot from Canon, Nikon, Olympus, Lumix. It but seems the, pretty standard. Uh, and the other thing I guess the um, mirrorless gives you is uh, seeing as you're looking through an electronic viewfinder, uh, any exposure changes you may make, you will see either on your LCD or on your viewfinder. Yes, that's absolutely true. Which is uh, something that uh, I did not have when I was shooting with the DSLR. And again, for the DSLR shooter, the answer there is going to be, it depends. Because some DSLRs will offer you on the LCD, not in the viewfinder because they're optical, but on the electronic LCD, they can offer you a setting within the menu called exposure simulation. Yes. So then if you say, well, what happens if I drop the exposure three stops, make it three stops darker? If your camera supports exposure simulation, and it's a DSLR, you'll actually see what it's going to look like. It's an approx. It's a simulation, mm-hmm. but no, it's a pretty agree. darn good enough. one. Um, and again, so oh, I've got my snow scene. I'm afraid it's going to be gray. What happens if I say, "Oh, it's very light." I'm going to add. I'm going to dial in some some pluses because it's very light. And I dial in plus two. That exposure sim on that LCD is going to show you what this what that capture is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there's another thing that happens with LCDs that seems to muck people up. They change how bright the LCD is. Right. I had a situation with an, 
working with an excellent photographer who had accidentally, like unintentionally, turned the brightness of the LCD on her camera way down. Okay. And then she was very concerned that all of her pictures were going to be dark. Yep. Because everything that she shot, she was judging based on what she saw on the LCD and playback. Yes. I get that. Lots of folks do that. But because the LCD brightness was turned down, she concluded that the camera was broken. Right. Because she was working in the field. She didn't have time to, you know, well, let me go download the card to the computer and view the photos and see how they're doing. So we do have to be cautious with the LCD brightness that we've got it set appropriate to where we're working. Mm -hmm. And that we remember to check it. Right. Because it is easy to make it too bright or too dark and have it fool us. And and I can see how that happens, uh, particularly if you're relying on your LCD and you're in the sunlight. Well, yeah. LCD looks dark. It looks dark. You can't see anything. So you say, well, uh, I don't know, but whatever it is, the LCD is dark. I better increase the brightness. And then you don't know what you're shooting. No, you do have to be careful with that. But I do have a potential solution for that. Okay. And that's called the loop. Yes. What our what our friend Brian Weiss would call Signor Lupe, which is probably <laughs> po- completely politically incorrect, <laughs> but I've known Brian for decades, and that's what he's always called it. Right. Um, and this is the one that I carry um, because I do have problems with the glare off the LCD. Right. Um, is from a company called Hoodman, mm-hmm. or Hoodman, or whom, whatever they pronounce it. Uh, and it's basically a rubber frame that I can hold up against the back of the camera and it has an eyepiece and it shields the LCD from any extraneous light and I look through the eyepiece and I get a really good sense of what that uh, image is going to look like and I've I've enhanced my own by adding a three times magnifying lens I don't even know if Hoodman still makes them but this was a modification so I could use it without having to zoom in as much to check focus. Right. Um, you know, if I, if I was concerned about depth of field or something like that. Now, there's all kinds of stuff that allows you to mount your your Hoodman loop on a frame or that flips it out of the way and flips it back into place and does all manner of stuff. Uh, but it's a very inexpensive route uh, to, seeing how, to seeing how this works. Might be a little bit cumbersome because, mm-hmm. of course, you've got to get the back of your camera close to your eye, right? And your eye to the eyepiece, but that works. Yep, and it's very expensive. Yep. <laughs> There's another option I can share with you, though. Go on. <laughs> well, as we increase our tenure, okay, our ability to see things on little tiny screens may diminish over time. Right. It's happened to me. But every camera that I own, with one exception, has HDMI out. Yep. Because they all shoot video. Yep. So for a few hundred dollars, under 300, you can get a five or seven inch LCD display that would mount in the hot shoe. That's connected mm-hmm. 
to the HDMI out, which gives you both preview and post view of your image. Right. And it may have all kinds of useful meters, like a histogram in it, for example. And it gives you a much bigger screen to look at. Right. And very often these things will come. Sorry. Very often these things will come with a hood, so they shield you. Now, for still photographers, this may sound foreign. For videographers, this is normal. Right. You know, focus pullers are not looking at little two-inch screens. They're looking at big displays right. uh, to make their decisions. And so are you know, the, the directors of photography. They're not looking like a teeny little screen. They're looking at something that's larger. I find that these tools are superb. The quality is great. And when you used to have to pay a lot of money for them, if you're not looking for something that also does recording and transcoding and all this other crap, um, you can get little displays. One company that I've recommended to lots of folks successfully, um, the brand is called Lilliput, you know, okay. like Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're a couple hundred bucks for a seven-inch display. Now, maybe you don't want to carry that peace and love and grooviness, but if you're looking for something that's going to help you assess exposure both before and after in a display that doesn't require special glasses or a lot of moving the zoom function on the back of the camera, which I confess I find very non-intuitive. I managed to screw that up regularly. (laughs) Um, One of these tools can also help you out a lot. So that's another option. The the only downside that I I see of that, and I, I like the concept of that, but Depending upon my my shooting is largely done in the field, mm-hmm. and uh, I am lugging backpacks and probably as uh, a hiking stick on one hand and a tripod on the other, and I'm not looking to carry anything bulky. So in that case, I, I th- is I probably think, all you need. I, I think they're 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 excellent things to have, but having invested the time to understand what your camera is doing or what you are trying to achieve with the camera will probably won't get you over the technicalities of focus and depth of field but it will certainly get you over the technicalities of uh, getting an exposure that you like well that's there's no question about that and i you know if it sounded like i was suggesting that these little tools no, no. are going to make your light your photos better they aren't no, same photo, just more. It's you, you, you know, in big screen that it's a crappy photo. Yes, yeah, you know, sooner at, at a greater <laughs> distance that this is garbage, <laughs> and you really shouldn't be pressing the shutter fifty-two times. Uh, they're just tools. Your point is really well taken. I think it's the most important one, which is take the time, invest in yourself to learn how meters work how the meter in your camera works and how that exposure compensation function works right and let me ask you a question how much does it cost to make a digital photo in the camera um practically nothing right you've already got the camera you've already got the card yep you probably got the computer that you download the card to yep so you could go out with your tripod Find a scene, 
make the exposure of what the camera thinks is correct, right? And then make exposures one stop different all the way down and all the way up. Right. And then you just put those in a little folder in your catalog, whether you use Lightroom or Capture One or whatever you'd use. And there's your reference. Yep. And the nice thing is that the digital camera will happily record all that information for you. Yes, it will tell you all that exposure information. You don't information. have to take a little notebook with you and copy down every little step that you do. It's it's there for you're, you to go and look at You're making again. fun of me again because you know you've seen me with my little well, notebook. Well, I, I also go out with another person who goes with a big book and makes notes on everything. So, yeah, so I don't do it anymore, <laughs> but I did for years. Because there was no EXIF data on Yes, uh, you didn't have an option. Uh, so no. That. Yeah, no, there's... I concur. There's a lot of great information that's, you know, contained um, in the image itself, mm-hmm. the EXIF information. And um, on a going off topic, I discovered um, this week I have been doing uh, a process evaluation um, for for my company at a couple of different locations. And because of the timing, the only camera I had with me was my iPhone. Mm-hmm. Well, all lumber starts to look alike. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot separating uh, one two-by-four <laughs> from another. And what I forgot about... Yep is how awesome it is to have the GPS coordinates <laughs> encoded into the photograph. Yes. Uh, I mean, I know my cameras could do can do it. Some of them have a built-in yep. uh, GPS function. And I hadn't used it in the past partly, partly because I was probably irrationally concerned about demand on battery. Right. You know, I go out with three spare batteries. What am I really worried about here? Uh, but man, it was so convenient. Go, oh, that bundle was here. Right. That bundle was there. And it was it's really useful, particularly if you're you know, you're going out, as you do, going into the field, and you find a shot or a location that really works for you. Well, you could note it in your car's GPS unless you walk and you walk. You can't drive your car in, into many of the places where you go to photograph. Yeah, that's true. Um that EXIF data that you were talking about that gives us good information about what we did for that specific exposure right. may also tell us how to get back to where we were if yes. we wanted to return to the same place. Yep. I know it's off topic, but it, it ties in nicely to a lot of the value proposition that we get in our new electronic cameras that we never had back in the old days. Yep. We really did write it down in a notebook. Mm-hmm. You know, with directions on how to get there. Yes. If I wanted to go back because I screwed it up the first time. I'm sorry? Turn left at Tim Hortons. Turn left at Tim Hortons, yeah. I would drive down the road. When you see the big cow, turn left. Yeah. Not the little cow, the big cow. That's funny. We've done that. Yeah, we have. (laughs) I've received directions like that. Okay, so let's come back to this. So... Can we trust the light meter? Well, yes, we can. We can trust the light meter because a light meter is always doing exactly what it's designed to do. It is our interpretation of what the light meter is doing that is the problem. It's not the light meter. 
Okay, second part of the question. Can we trust the LCD? Uh, the LCD will also do exactly what it's supposed to do, unless you fiddled with the controls, in which case all bets are off. So what you're suggesting, and I'm, I'm not trying to be rude or put words in your mouth, but in both cases, the technology works fine, and if there's a problem, it's going to be a code 9. Which is? Problem exists nine inches behind the camera. Correct. Okay. That would be about right. Fair enough. So, guys, if you feel that you can't trust your light meter or can't trust your LCD, we're going to encourage you to stop. It's not your camera. It's not your LCD. The probability that these things are defective is minuscule. The problem might be you. So what do you do? Take the time, invest, learn how the light meter works. Learn about the different metering patterns that your camera offers. Are you using the one that best suits you? Learn about how exposure compensation works. Go try that. Go plant your camera on a tripod and make a bunch of exposures of the same scene doing nothing but manipulating the exposure compensation dot. Build up that intellectual library that you'll be able to use forever. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Gordon. I think that was uh, a useful topic and certainly was something that I hear regularly and that you appear to hear pretty regularly mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to say before we shut her down this time? No, I, I think we've covered uh, everything. It's the technology doesn't replace we need to think or see. Um, we have to understand what the camera is seeing and what it's doing. And we have to decide how we want the images to look and feel. And if we figure out how to... Uh, anticipate what the camera is going to do and make compensate for that we're off to the races well that's great thanks gordon um as we wrap up guys um some good news uh for folks using different uh, media streaming tools um as of today not only are we on itunes and on stitcher we are now on amazon music so you can find our podcast on a variety of different streaming sources from Make Better Photos and Videos, I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. We'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>